0: Get in the Word of God. Last week we saw Jesus was in uh, Caesarea Philippi. He was spending time with the twelve away from the crowds. Uh, this, you know, the first part of Jesus' ministry was very, very public. But now he's moving into a season where he withdraws a bit. He, he's going to spend more time pouring into just the twelve. And uh, and last week Jesus asked the disciples, if you remember this, who do the people say that I am? And they told Jesus all the rumors they'd heard about his identity. And if you remember. They listened off a bunch of different prophets. Remember that? Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say all the you know, different prophets, right? And, and then Jesus asked a very poignant question to them. Who, who do you say that I am? Or who do y'all say that I am? Speaking to the, 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 uh, the, the group of the disciples there. And answering for the disciples, together Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, flesh And blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. But my Father who's in heaven revealed this to you. In other words, the only way that Peter came to this knowledge of who Jesus truly is was by the revealing work of God the Father. And Peter, or Jesus further tells Peter, you are Peter, and we talked a lot about this last week, on this rock I will build my church. And listen, we we discussed in great detail the meaning of that last week and, and how it was controversial Because uh, it had become the the foundation for creating uh, the Pope. I spent a lot of time with that last week, and we're not going to get back into it again. But it is really relevant for today's reading. Because what I want to point out to you is that last week, Peter was a rock star. I mean, he really was. The the confession of Jesus' true identity was was a rock star moment for Peter, right? Uh, And sometimes, having rock star moments... Is the worst thing for us, right? It's it's really bad for us. And here's what I mean: one of the worst things that can happen to an average basketball player is to make an early three-pointer, right? Those of you who know who know basketball know this. You're not that good, and and, and because you're not that good, no one's really guarding you, and, and the team is kind of forced to pass you the ball, and you put the ball down at your hip and you just heave it up, and, and for some Statistical anomaly it goes in, or God forbid it happens twice, you will become convinced that you are a Steph Curry. Like, in your mind, you're going to be like, I am, I am the greatest basketball player in the world. And you'll start running down the court. You'll start calling for the ball. And you're going to start letting it fly with reckless abandonment. And at some point, after you've missed like seven or eight shots in a row, your team is going to be like, hey, man, maybe you need to pass the ball more. Like, and that's not a perfect... Like, it's not a perfect description of what's happening here, but I, I think you're going to see today that, that that Peter might be so emboldened by the great confession that, that he's, you know, and, and what Jesus is to him is like, Peter, you're the rock, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. That he's so emboldened by this that he might lose some perspective. Okay, and I'll show you what I mean. Let's read together from Scripture this morning, Matthew 16. Twenty-one through twenty-eight. I invite you to stand in reverence of the Word of God, if you are able. Before we read, let's uh, let's have a word of prayer together, shall we? Father, your church um, stands ready to gather around your Word, which is revealed to us, where we see Jesus, the image of the invisible God. I thank you for this revelation and I pray that by your spirit we would rightly understand it. We pray this in Jesus name and the church said amen. amen. Beginning in verse 21. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. A lot going on in today's text. Now, I love everything about this text. It's, it's really pretty awesome. Uh, let's start with verse 21, shall we? So what it says from that time, which should kind of cue us on that, that something is changing. From, from this time on or from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, because he's, remember, he's, he's kind of pulled in, with, working on the 12 now, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Um, the context here is, is, is the great confession has just happened. Peter has is, is just said who Jesus is. And, and Jesus has told Peter, you're the rock, and on that rock I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. From that time forward, right then, Jesus begins, after the great confession, he begins to show his disciples what he must do. And I want to just put a really heavy emphasis on the word must. This is not a must of, of some human decision. This is the must-do stuff of the Messiah. This this is laid in stone before the foundations of the world were laid. MacArthur says, he says this, this is a must that comes thundering out of eternity. It's It's an ageless must. This is the must of redemption. What does Jesus tell his disciples that he must do? It's four things. First, he must go to Jerusalem. At, at the moment when Jesus is talking, he's about as far from, from danger in Jerusalem as you could be and still be in Palestine. You know, he, he's far away, but he knows that right now he must turn his face towards Jerusalem and begin to head that way. The second thing that he must do is that Jesus must suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. That, those three groups make up the Sanhedrin and Jesus knew that he, would, he, he must go to Jerusalem. He would be tried. He would be embarrassed. He would be humiliated. and All the gruesome horrors leading up to the cross, Jesus must. The third thing Jesus must, is he must be killed. This is the Greek word not for a, a, a just killing. It's the Greek word for a murder. He must be murdered. And the fourth thing that Jesus says is that on the third day he must be raised from the dead. There, there, there's, a, there's a passive tone to that, by the way. Uh, the, the, I, I must be raised from the dead. Jesus is being raised from the dead, not by his own power, but by the power of the Father. It's the great resurrection. Jesus, I mean, he had hinted about his death before. This is the first time he talks about it. But up to this point, the disciples didn't seem to understand the plan for redemption. And and when Peter hears the eternal plan for redemption, his His brain just shuts off. He stops listening after the suffering and death stuff. He doesn't even seem to hear the part about resurrection. And what you're going to see is Peter lose himself. Peter's going to lose himself. He can't, Peter cannot figure out how God could operate through suffering. And and Peter's pretty emboldened. He just uh, had that big win with the great confession and all the nice things that Jesus said about him. And look what Peter does. Verse 22. And Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him, saying, uh, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Uh, the, the, the Greek word here for, for took him aside means to kind of t- take hold of him. And I, I just, in my mind, I imagine Peter, um, big old Peter, kind of hooking his arm around Jesus' waist or his neck and kind of pulls him aside from the other uh, apostles there. It's a pretty brash move on Peter's part. And the Scripture says that Peter rebukes the Lord. And Peter says, Jesus, far be it from you, or, or, or this, this shall never happen to you. Another translation might be, God, God forbid that this ever happen to you. What is it that bothers Peter? What bothers him is, is God's eternal plan. What, is, what does Peter suggest instead? In, instead, uh, Peter suggests his own plan for how things should go. It's as if Peter tells God, what if you tried it another way? What what if you tried my plan? I've got some ideas I'd like to share for you for redemption. I think that you're going to like these as well. It's just so bold. Um, And I guess my question for you who are sitting out here listening to this today is, have you ever found yourself doing this with the Lord? Uh, Lord, here, here are my plans for how my life should go. I would like absolute zero suffering. I would like no trials and no hardship. I would prefer, Lord, an easy death and then eternity and glory. Can I get those things, Lord? That's my plan for my life. I'd like you to think about those things, you know. I think, we, I think we're all guilty of trying to ask the Lord for our own plan in our lives. And can we talk about the reaction of Jesus here? How does he take to Peter's rebuke of what he must do. Let's read it together. Verse 23. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) You are a a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Uh, I've heard people express shock in this verse that Jesus would respond so sternly. Like in verse 18, He literally says, Peter, you're the rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. And in verse 23, he says, get behind me, Satan. The rock kind of crumbled, didn't it? What's going on here? I, I need to show you why Jesus addresses Peter as Satan. And in order to do so, I need to go back in time with you. I need to go back to that time in Matthew where where Jesus is in the wilderness with Satan and he's being tempted, right? And I need to ask you this question. What was the main temptation that Satan used to tempt Jesus in the wilderness? You know what it was? Satan's main temptation to Jesus was to simply not follow through with those four eternal musts that he just got done sharing, right? Right? If you have these powers, Jesus, you know, why don't you just use them? You you, you can take an easy way out. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to to turn your face to Jerusalem and go and face the Sanhedrin and and die. You you can throw yourself off the high point here and your angels will just stop your death. And ultimately, like if you remember what Satan does, Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world without an ounce of pain. Without one ounce of pain. Satan was willing to give Jesus anything to keep him from walking the divine path of suffering. He was offering shortcuts. Satan was offering ways out. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. Do you think that Jesus was tempted by that? I don't know. Scripture says that that, that Jesus understood temptation. Hebrews 4, 15, look at it. For, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet what? Without sin. I, I, I think in some part of his spirit, Jesus is very much tempted not to go to Jerusalem. Like a lamb going to the slaughter, yet he defeated the temptation of Satan there in the wilderness, right? And, and, and look what happens Luke 4, 13. This is so interesting. I hope you have an aha moment here. And when the devil had ended temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Right? Satan finishes the temptation in the wilderness, leaves until an opportune time. And I hope this makes sense to you that that Jesus, why Jesus calls Peter Satan is is that Peter is accidentally doing the same work here that, that Satan did in the garden. He's he's tempting Jesus in the same way. He's saying, Jesus, you don't need to suffer. There's another way. Satan had departed for a more opportune time. Well, here we are. He's back. And suddenly working through a believer, by the way, who just got um, uh, shown by the Father the true identity of Jesus, right? It's funny. In one moment... Uh, Peter is being led by the father to confess the lordship of Jesus. And in the very next moment, he is unwillingly doing the work of Satan from the garden or from the, uh, from the wilderness. Isn't that wild? Get behind me, Satan. It means get out of my way, right? I'm going to Jerusalem. Jesus says to Peter, you're a hindrance to me. The Greek word uh, skandalon, it, it, it means... It means stumbling block, like you're, you're a stumbling block to me. Um, or even more originally, scandalon was the part of a trap that you would attach the bait to. So what you have Jesus basically saying to Peter is, get out of my way, Satan, because what you're saying is a stumbling block for me. It, it, it's, it's the bait of a trap for me. Jesus tells Peter this. He says, uh, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. Rather, you have your mind set on the things of men. In one one moment, Peter has these eyes to see. He's got spiritual sight. And in the very next moment, Peter is spiritually blind again. It's our nature, it is, to focus on the things of this world. In a worldly perspective, Peter thought it would be better if Jesus did not suffer and die. He thought he could straighten Jesus out. I imagine, and I'm just trying to be empathetic here to Peter, I imagine that Peter was really shocked by Jesus' reaction. I think he was trying to show love to Jesus. I think he was. I don't think Peter realized that he was doing the work of Satan. And and I think we should come to realize that not every disobedience and offense to Christ comes with some intent for rebellion. It's possible to offend Christ simply by by serving him in a way that's your own way, your own ideas, and and, and not in the way that that he has commanded us to serve and, and, and worship him. I think from Peter's perspective, he wanted to protect Jesus. From God's viewpoint, what? Jesus has to die. And Peter should have known that. He should have. Peter lovingly tried tried to stop the work of redemption that saved you and I. He should have known better. John the Baptist said this. He said, uh, behold the Lamb of God looking at Jesus who takes away the sin of the world. How does a lamb take away sin? he dies he sheds his blood Peter should have known Uh, I don't have to work real hard to make this sermon applicable because Jesus does it himself look what he says next verse 24 then Jesus told his disciples if anyone would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me a Jesus instruction to Peter is is get behind me Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem, and the call of discipleship is the call of Jesus to come after me, to come with me. That's, that, that's what call Jesus offers you today. Come with him to Jerusalem to experience suffering and to lay down your very life. That's the call of Jesus. How many churches today are teaching this message? We have churches that are winning converts to Jesus by telling them all of the benefits and blessings of following Jesus. Jesus. But they never tell people where you're following Jesus to. You're following him to Jerusalem, to suffering, and to the cross. That's where you're invited to follow Jesus. Instead, they say, follow Jesus, and it will increase your business. Follow Jesus if you want to be blessed. Follow Jesus to glory. And I can tell you one thing, my friends. Following Jesus will lead you to glory, but not before passing through Jerusalem, suffering, and death. If you want to follow Jesus, that's where he's going. We have have Christians who carry crosses around their neck and they wear them like they're lucky charms. They They wear a cross around their neck like it's a rabbit's foot. They rub them when they pray like some idol. That's not what the cross is about. The cross does not bring you good luck. It reminds you where Jesus went for you and it beckons you To come after him. So if you have a cross, whatever it is, you need to look at that and be reminded where you're going and where your Savior went for you. Verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The logic of man says this it says, if if, if I give my life away to Christ, I've lost my life. But Christ says to those who give their life for me, those are the people who truly find life, eternal life. Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for a soul? Jesus imagines a transaction where someone would offer you all the world. They'd they'd offer you everything in the world for your soul. Remember the legend has it that, that Robert Johnson went down to the crossroads and he made a deal with the devil where the devil got his soul And Robert Johnson got to be a master guitarist. It's folklore. It's really popular here in the South. I mean, I don't believe it. It's an interesting story. But Jesus seems to introduce a what if. What if someone offered you anything and everything for your soul? Is that a deal that you would make? And I think most of us are like, no way, man. No, my soul is eternal. Things on this earth pass away So on on the one hand, we get Jesus saying your soul is more valuable than anything, but at the same time in verse 26, he says this also, or what can a man give in return for his soul? And the answer is nothing. You cannot win your soul by morality. You can't win your soul by self-discipline. None of those things can save a man's soul. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're not saved by by picking up your cross and following Jesus to Jerusalem. You're saved by the work of the Holy Spirit who puts faith in your heart and credits you with the atoning work of Jesus Christ. But, but, and this is always where people kind of get confused, this next part is interesting, right? Look at verse 27 with me. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what? What? What he has done. Several times in Matthew, I'm just trying to make this make sense for you. We are told about rewards in heaven. Works will not not get you to heaven. But Jesus says once you are in heaven, you will have some rewards based on works. I hope that makes sense. Works will not get you there. But, but somehow when you're there, there are some rewards for the way you've lived your life. Matthew 6.20 tells us that we are to lay up treasures in heaven. Revel, excuse me, Matthew 5.12 said, rejoice for your reward in heaven is great. Uh, Revelation 22.12 says this, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to, reply, to repay each one for what he has done. So Jesus, he's conjuring these images of judgment day. Follow Jesus on the way to the cross because on judgment day, rewards will be given to those who have. And the last verse this morning is a a challenge. Okay, it's kind of hard to understand. Maybe you've heard it before and maybe you find it very hard to understand. We're gonna talk about it today. Uh, Verse 28, Let's, let's see what Jesus says. He says this, truly, I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the context seems to be this. We just kind of jump, take a step back to try to understand this. Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem. If you come after me, you're going to have to deny yourself, pick up your own cross, and follow me. and, And realize that the treasures of this world are not worth losing your soul. Because one day the Son of Man will come and His angels will, with his angels in the glory of the Father and he will repay each man for what he's done. But some of you will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now the reason that, that this verse seems confusing is that there are a lot of people who begin by assuming that Jesus is talking about the second coming here. Right? Maybe, is, is, is that maybe what you thought, that Jesus is talking about the second coming? I want to suggest something different about what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, follow me with my logic, right? Jesus says, some of you will not taste death until what? Until the Son of Man comes into his kingdom. Who is the Son of Man? Jesus. Uh, where does that title come from? It comes from Daniel chapter 7. What is Daniel chapter 7 about? Well, it's about this kind of this, this vision, this, this story of where the father gives dominion to the son, okay? He, he gives, and, and dominion being sovereignty, gives him control. It, and it starts with this image of the ancient of days. And um, we take this to be the father. So look at Daniel 7, 9. Look, look with me at the ancient of days. And he says, look, I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Uh, This is an image of God the Father. And then you get an image of the nations next, right? First is the the Ancient of Days. Then you get an, an image of the nations. Look at verses 11 through 12. And and the reason I say it's the nations is that generally anytime uh, we see these beasts in prophetic literature, they're representative of of the nations, right? So so different nations that are in leadership and they're falling is, is normally always represented by these beasts. So look at verses 11 through 12. I looked, and because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, right? So that's what's happening to the nations. And if you're kind of a guy who's reading this with kind of historical context, you're here, you're reading about one nation being given over to be burned with fire. And maybe you're thinking about 80, 70 and and, and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. I don't know what you're thinking about there. Uh, But next, what you're going to see is that story of the son of man, right? So look at Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Ready? So in this vision, we see the Son of Man, he rides upon the clouds, and where does he go? He goes to the Ancient of Days. Where is the Ancient of Days at? Well, he's in in heaven. What is is the Son of Man given? Well, he's given authority over heaven and earth. Okay, so here's my question. When do we see Jesus, the Son of Man, given authority and ascending to the Father in heaven? I think this is all pointing to the ascension of Jesus following his resurrection, Two, two final verses, right? right? Matthew uh, 18, 20, or 28, 18, it says this. And this is after the resurrection, and Jesus is about to ascend, and this is what he tells them. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Right? This is the fulfillment of Daniel 7. Jesus, the Son of Man, has been given authority. Now look at Acts 1, 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight that's very much the fulfillment of, of the prophecy of Daniel 7. The Son of Man lifted up on a cloud. Okay, I hope, hope that makes sense. When Jesus says, some of you will not taste death until the Son of Man comes into his kingdom, I believe it's pointing to his great ascension to the Father. Okay, this is a full week of reading this week. Uh, we start off with Peter rebuking Jesus for the cross. In doing so, we find that, that Peter's accidentally participating in the ministry of Satan, Uh, Jesus corrects Peter, and he tells him to get behind me. And then he tells his disciples that if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The the call upon you this morning is to follow Jesus in his ministry of self-denial. What does it mean in your life? I guess this is the place to land here. What does it mean in your life to pick up your cross and to follow Jesus. And, and where are you tempted to gain the world and lose your soul? And is this not, based on what we've seen here, is this, is this not the very nature of Satan's temptation of Jesus and his temptation of us? Where we are tempted to gain the world and lose our soul. This has been Matthew 16, 21 through 28. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for the, your revelation today, the reading of this text, and the challenge that comes with it. For how many times have we been like Peter who have uh, tried to argue against your great will, God, where we know that your truth is revealed in one way and, uh, and we think we know better and have better ways. Father, set us on the path of Jesus. May we follow him towards Jerusalem. May we carry our own cross. May we be willing to suffer for the kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Well, let's stand and sing once more this morning.